Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. Today on Brand New Doctor, we are going beyond inspiring you to carve your own path to developing the skills you actually need to be able to do this. We are talking about communicating and performing under pressure in all kinds of situations. This is so important for us in clinical practice, but even more so if we want to create opportunities for ourselves in our workplace or off the beaten path. So today I am joined by my guest and our esteemed teacher, Jenna Dominique. Jenna is a pitch coach, a speaker and event host. Over the course of 15 years, she's worked with over 2,000 individuals and teams to perfect their business pitches and nail what she calls their three C's, their confidence, their content and their communication style. Jenna has a passion for working with startups and has recently launched First Class Comms, which helps ambitious entrepreneurs and teams to upgrade their influence and impact when they pitch. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because clinicians have to communicate and perform under pressure all the time, whether that's poster presentations or being asked difficult questions, OSCEs, interviews, pitches. Honestly, the list, it goes on and on. But we're often thrown into the deep end and we have to learn the hard way. And I know there's so many techniques that you can share that would be helpful to people working in healthcare. It's a skill that's so important, like you said, for the clinical setting and beyond. But I think this is especially relevant and not not many people realise this, I think, is such a key skill for this industry. Mm-hmm. So I'm super pumped to be here. Oh, amazing. Okay, so let's start with this great framework that you use with your clients. Can you introduce the three C's, confidence, content and communication style? Yes. And there's definitely something around the order of those as well. So this is a framework that I work with pretty much every one of my clients on. Some may be more emphasis on one of the C's than others, depending on how confident they are and how far along they are with their content. But to be really be able to step up and speak up and do yourself justice, there's a mindset element to it. So we always start with the confidence. And there's a real benefit to checking in on how you're feeling going into situations where you are pitching, you're presenting, maybe you're being thrown some curveballs in an interview. There needs to be some level of feeling like you're in your optimum mindset. So that confidence being that first pillar, that first C that I work with is almost trumps above all else to start with. Once you can feel like you're in that mindset and you've got that confidence to step up onto that stage or to step into that situation, then we need to be thinking about, okay, what is it that you're going to say? So we really unpick the content of, if it's in an interview, for example, I know we'll look at different scenarios, but what might come up? What are the key examples that you might want to give? If it's a presentation, what are the key messages you want to get across for your audience? And often we start with the content, which is absolutely the right thing to do, But once we finish our presentations, once we've got our script, our points, our PowerPoints polished, we then think, great, I'm done. But there's a whole nother C to come into it. And that's how you communicate that content. And that's a really big one. And that's one that we're probably going to come up with so many tips today because you might have the best content in the world. 
But if you don't engage your audience with how you're delivering that content, then it's a wasted opportunity. So communication style is that final C to really think about how you're showing up, how you're using your body language, your voice, and all of that to get your personality across and to engage your audience. So that's that's a little whistle-stop tour of that 3C framework. Yeah, it's such a great way to think about it. And I, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. I feel like when you feel confident about what you have to say, you feel a lot more comfortable and I think it just makes everything easier. You obviously have to say something of worth and at the end of it, ultimately, if you if you say it in the most boring, monotone kind of way, then it's not going to connect with your audience at all. So that's that's a really great way to kind of sum it up. Talking about communication first or confidence, first of all, when it comes to communication, it's something that we are told as clinicians that we need to have. And it's it's kind of essential for people to trust in us and for them to have confidence in what we're saying to them ultimately. But we don't actually get a lot of help in how we actually get to that point of feeling confident about when we're speaking to people. I think it's just something that we just have to figure out. And there's this kind of idea of fake it to make it, which divides a lot of people. Some are in favor, others are against it. But I'm curious, where do you stand on this? Oh, it's a great question. Um, and it's a phrase we always, we always hear. I think it can mm-hmm. be useful when used in the right way. I think the issue with fake it till you make it is that it suggests that you are putting on this front and you're not being authentic to you when you're showing up and that's where it doesn't work and I, I you know and I, I see that time and again where we there's only so much you can do to put on this false pretense and especially in a work scenario in a career scenario that's going to be hard to keep up if you're having to really fake it every day when you're showing up and going to meetings and delivering presentations it's going to catch you out I would say the only time and the way that I frame fake it till you make it to be an option to use is where you are up against it in terms of I've got this stage I'm going on here and in your mindset you're thinking you know what I'm going to step into the most confident version of myself so you're not trying to be someone else you're not trying to be this completely different person you're trying to imagine what's the most confident version of myself and who does that person look like so I still get nervous and I was talking to someone earlier today about this they said do you you get nervous when you speak absolutely and it's not a bad thing I think some people think you know when you're confident speakers just because you enjoy it, it doesn't mean that you don't get nervous because actually nerves show that you care about what you're doing. And that's a really positive thing. So if you're feeling nervous, the first thing I would say is that's not a bad thing. You know, try to embrace it, that there's a reason why those nerves are there. It's because you care about doing a good job and you care about showing up in the best way possible. But trying to get into that, okay, if you're really struggling, you've got those nerves kicking in, What does that confident Jenna look like when I step out onto the stage? Does she have her shoulders sort of back a little bit, her chest up a little bit? Does she smile at the audience? Does she pause before she speaks and uses her hand gestures to make connections with her audience? And you almost visualize this confident version of you. So you're still authentic. It just might be that some people need that technique to be able to overcome that nerves and the lack of confidence. Otherwise, it's not about trying to be someone that you're not, because as I said, it won't work in the long run. So that that's my take on fake it till you make it. It's a very balanced, balanced view and answer that I've given you there, I think. <laughs> I think that's great though. No, I, I think I agree with that. It's just that we think that faking or um 
when we we don't think of ourselves as a confident person, if we don't identify as a confident person, whatever that is exactly, we think that to to be confident is disingenuous, and it's it's weird that we can almost moralize not making an effort in that sense. We're very very interesting um, to think of instead. Just visualize what is the most confident version of of you, because um, we we definitely in some areas we can be more confident than other areas, and let's let's kind of move towards that direction instead. I'm curious as well when it comes to your kind of journey, because you say that sometimes you feel kind of nervous when you're going on stage, which I think, as you say, is is just a sign that you care. What are some tips that have worked for you when it comes to your confidence? It's an interesting one. And I think everyone's different when it comes to this. For me personally, knowing my content really helps me to get in that right mindset. And I think I would say that applies for everyone, but it will be different levels. So there are some occasions where people are surprised that I will, I will script out pretty much word for word what I want to say for certain talks that I'm doing, or if I'm presenting and hosting certain events, there's a particular introduction I really want to nail down and I get right. For other scenarios, I might feel a little bit more relaxed to just have some bullet points and have some key points to talk around, and then it can be a little bit more natural. So as long as I feel confident that I know my content and whether that's scripted or whether that's just some bullet points that I can talk around, and I've done a bit of practice beforehand, then I'm happy and I, f- I feel good. So that's for me the tip. And we said this right at the start with those three C's. Often we focus on that middle one, that content piece, which is a great place to start. But then it's a case of really understanding, okay, I know my content that's going to have an impact on my confidence. Now, how am I going to deliver that? But that for me is, is a big thing. And I, I speak to clients a lot who agree in terms of when they feel like they know what they're talking about then that's where the confidence picks up. Now, in this setting, and I think for clinicians as well, there is that element of trust, that trust that you know your stuff, trust that you know that you're being in this, that you're in this situation, you're delivering this pitch or presentation because you want to make a change, because you know what you're talking about and there's a reason for putting this idea forward or you're in this interview because you deserve to be there. You've done the application. Now it's a case of seeing if it's a good fit for you and for the organisation. There's a lot of different elements to it, but that for me is the biggest thing is content and giving myself enough time to practice and just go through the notes rather than feeling like you're flying off the seat of your pants and just going into one situation and one stage to another and not really giving yourself that headspace to get into that zone and that optimum zone that I keep talking about. Mm, Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about content. I know that content can be almost the trickiest part in a way. I mean, confidence is really, really tricky as well to, to get a hold of. But when you've been working really hard on a project, it can be really hard to communicate it simply and clearly to other people, maybe because it's precious to you or you have this kind of deep understanding of it that other people don't have. It's almost as if you're too close to it. And it can be really hard to cut your message down to the simplest form that your audience can actually connect with. So can you talk a little bit about what you do with first class comms? How do you coach your clients so that they get that clear line of sight and they can connect with what connect what they want to say mm-hmm. with what their audience actually needs to hear? And it's so key. And I should say, actually, there's so many health tech startups that I work with, for example, that's a really good example here because often, and a lot of academics as well that run spin-out companies that then 
it's so in your head that you know what you want to say and you know what all the technology does and, and the science does. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Joe Bloggs on the street doesn't get it, then it, you know nine times out of ten, if the person in front of you isn't from your field of expertise, then you're you're gonna again waste that opportunity that you've got. So there's a few things that I would say and that I always work with clients on. The first one is to finalize and really break down what's your one key message. Now this can be really tough, but if I say to you, what's the one thing that that audience or that person that you're meeting has to come away with from your presentation, your pitch, your point, what is it? So one key message. And that really then helps to funnel all the content to check, does this feed into that person understanding this one key message? And that's probably part of the hardest bit. Once you've got that one key message, then you can start breaking it down. And I always use the rule of three. The rule of three is really handy. It's often a sales technique that's used because it's memorable. You might often see marketing campaigns that are the top three, five, seven, ten things that you need to know about X, Y, Z. These numbers are sort of there for a reason. I won't go into the psychology of it, but if you can break it down into a rule of three, that works really nicely because it's more memorable for us to take in. So you could have this one key message and then you say there are three key parts to this proposal. There are three key parts to this example. And then you break that down in that sense. Once you've got that rough structure, then you apply what I call the so what technique. So if you're saying anything or making any points where there's a risk or an opportunity for the person listening to you to say, okay, that's that's great, but so what? It means you haven't connected it to the one key message or you haven't connected it to what they might care about. So keep going back to that, you know, ask yourself, so what, is there that opportunity? Because then that will force you to either give more detail or it might be that you take that bit away completely because it's not actually adding value to the presentation that you're delivering. So that's sort of a starter for 10. And then the other thing I would say is use someone I say use someone, work with someone, it's probably a better way of saying it, that isn't in your area of expertise just to get their feedback on. It's priceless. If you can just jump on a 10 minute call with someone to say, look, I'm developing this presentation or I'm preparing for this proposal. I need someone that's not from a clinical background or not from my area of expertise, just to repeat back to me what you think or what you're taking from this presentation. And if what you hear is good and actually makes sense, brilliant. If what you hear back isn't quite landing, then it means you need to go back to the drawing board and revisit that content and strip it down even more. So those are the things that I would say as a start of a 10 to think about. One, actually putting together a great structure for your presentation and your content that's going to make sense and keep it really nice and concise. And then being able to practice that content just to make sure there's no jargon in there, make sure there's no phrases that are coming up that you might think, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. We need to break it down even further. So hopefully that gives a bit of a starting point for the content side. It's a big beast. This is the biggest C because it's everyone's different with their presentations. But those are some generic tips and frameworks that I work with clients on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is some amazing advice. I, I also love the rule of threes because um, I used to do Toastmasters. <laughs> I was there for some time and it always split up a, a speech into three points because three is just a great number, isn't it? Really, it's not too much. It's not too little. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you say, connecting it with why they should be listening to you at every point. Really, really great, useful tips. So 
when we communicate, we need to be compelling to convince people to actually act on the words that we're saying to them, right? And there's a real skill to do to doing this with public speaking, with Toastmasters or whatever else it might be. And obviously you've been doing this for years now, 15 years to be precise. What are the common mistakes people make when they are trying to get a point across in any setting? And what would you say are some kind of quick fixes for them? The common ones that I would say is firstly around the pace that you're speaking at. This is probably the most common one. Mm -hmm. We tend to speak quicker when we're nervous, which we might have, I thought someone listening to this might have found previously. I do it. I'm naturally a fast talker. And when I get nervous, then it speeds up even more. And you you might be thinking, okay, I just want to get to the end of this. And that's often what it is in our minds. We're thinking I'm nervous. Mm. I'm in an uncomfortable situation. So I just want to get to the end as soon as possible so I can get out of here and feel back to my comfort zone again. Now, the way around that, because that's natural. And if you feel that you are picking up your pace, the first thing is to recognize I'm speaking a bit fast now. I need to start taking some breaths. And I would just pause, take a sip of water, always have some water when you're presenting or in an interview, just so you've got that opportunity to take that pause. And that just gives you a bit of a break to reset and then start again, pick up from where you left off, for example. So pace is a really key thing. Again, practice it. And a lot of people find this really cringy, but record yourself, record yourself, even if it's not on video, although I encourage that completely, jump onto a Zoom call, whatever platform Mm. works for you and record yourself because then you can see things like your body language and how that all um, interacts. But worst case, or at the least, just do a voice note, voice note on your phone, listen to it back because that's going to allow you to see or to hear rather, am I talking quite quickly here? Is there enough up and down and what I saw sort of energy in my voice. And if you can almost listen to it without seeing yourself, it's similar to a podcast. If you can keep that audience engaged, then you know you're onto something there. So pace and pauses, I would say are the biggest things that are missed because that's just natural. We just do get nervous and it is down to practice and to have that self-awareness during that presentation. If you're feeling you're going a bit quick, just take a breath, take a sip of water and then pick up from where you left off. The other common mistake that I often see, um, not so much a communication style. This is kind of coming into content, but sometimes when we get nervous, we repeat ourselves mm-hmm. and we struggle to finish our yeah. sentences. So we're up there. We don't like silence. So naturally, as humans, we we tend to just try to fill silence. That's why we have filler words like um, ah, uh, like you know, so so what. Um, and there, mm-hmm. there you go. Just, just did one myself. And we tend to try to fill the silence. And all that is, <laughs> instead of trying to fill the silence, just give yourself a beat. Just try to replace it with a brief pause and then move on. And it will make it so much more impactful when you're delivering that talk. And with the repeating side, it's tough because we might have forgotten what we want to say. And then we suddenly start repeating what we've already said. So then we have at least something to say, even though it's something we've already said before. And again, take a pause, take a breath, try to recoup. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just taking a couple of beats just to be able to refocus and then be able to carry on there as well. So I could probably go on with a lot of a list, but in terms of the most common pace and pauses, first one, and then repeating ourselves and struggling to end. The final tip I would give on that last piece where we tend to, and what I mean by struggling to end sentences is If you imagine you're in an interview and you've been asked this great question, give us an example of when you've demonstrated A, B and C. And you give this great example and then you're not really too sure how to end the answer. So you end up sort of 
dwindling down and going. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the, uh, that's the example that I, uh, I would give. And, um, and then you kind of carry on until someone interrupts you to with the next question. Whereas what you've got to do is end on a really strong note and make sure that you're confident I've answered that question and I'm going to leave it there. Just, just, Hold that silence and just a few beats of silence. <laughs> let's the other person know you've finished. Same at the end of a presentation. Hold that silence. The applause will come or the questions will come in. Trust that that will happen. It's so much more powerful than just trailing off and quietly carrying on talking, hoping someone's going to let you in. So that's a little, little nippet that I wanted to squeeze in there as one of those two. I love that. <laughs> I I really love that. I can I can almost as you as you're describing it. I can almost imagine just the cringiness that you get when you are finishing what you're trying to say. And there's that so yeah kind of ending that is just so like it's it's just it's not it's not final in any way. <laughs> are you are you happy with the answer that I've given rather than I'm happy I'm done. So yeah, there's a, oh, I just done it now. So yeah, that's a really, a, a really helpful kind of summary of, of some of the common tips. I think pace and pauses for sure are a difficult thing to kind of get your mind into because as you say, if you're not that kind of person normally to speak in that way, who, who's comfortable with taking your time with speaking and people waiting for you to finish almost it can be really hard to do that. So you, I, th- I feel like you need to switch your mindset a little bit and become that person in the moment. So I, I do wonder if you have any kind of tips for switching your mindset so that you can almost get into the, the, the headspace that now I'm giving a speech. This is my speech persona, if you like. Yeah. And this is all about finding what works for you because I've, I've, I've looked at all the so many clients that I've worked with and sort of always tried to find a thread of commonality and and it isn't one size fits all when it comes to sort of the mindset and what helps you get into that great frame of mind is very personal and it and it's all it takes a bit of self-awareness and some real sort of thought on your side to be able to think well let me try different techniques so for me for example I know when I'm at my best when I'm presenting or delivering some sort of talk when I'm quite fired up and I feel quite energetic because that's that kind of marries into my personality of, you know, being quite open and being quite personable, like people person, that's, that's where I want to be. So I might go for a run that morning. I might listen to some upbeat music. I might put my headphones in and just try to concentrate or something that's going to get that adrenaline going, but that certainly doesn't work for everyone. Actually, I'd say the majority, if there was was a majority, if I did sort of look at the data, is that actually feeling quite cool, calm, collected works for a lot of people as well. So it might be that you meditate. It might be that you do a yoga session. You might want to listen to some calming music that's going to sort of bring that focus down and sort of focus attention and really feel like you're quite relaxed as well. So it's not, as I said, a one size fits all. It's just trying to think, well, what have you done to help you get into that zone? And sometimes comparing it to if you were, well, everyone's into sports and everything but if you were at the Olympic Games like let's just put this thought out there and you were on that 100 meter start line and you were getting ready to be in that moment 
what is it you would have done before that to help you get into that optimum mindset, regardless of the physical side, although that does help to get physically active sometimes, but really trying to think about, are you rehearsing what you want to say? Are you trying to clear your head so it's not actually too overwhelming with the task coming up? Are you trying to do deep breaths? That always works really nicely, doing some stretches. So it's almost trying to think of these big moments and what would you do if you was in that big moment and translate that into the presenting sense and the interview just to really be able to work out how do I manage my nerves in a way that translates in a positive way for me that helps me come across as authentic, I would say is probably the word, as possible and put your best foot forward. Yeah, those are some great tips some great kind of general tips on how to do some self-exploration. Ultimately, I suppose we, we have to figure out what works for each one of us. I, I think I definitely fall into the camp of, I probably want to calm down a little bit beforehand, but I'm actually curious to try out what would happen if I did try and hype myself up beforehand. So I guess it's, it's also something that you can experiment with and see, you know, what, what happens with different situations. So I want to talk to you about some examples that came to mind from my experience and from conversations I've had with various people of, you know, doctors, dentists, clinicians, different types of clinicians about situations that they're in because of the work that they do or work that they're trying to move into. And for our listeners, I think this will be helpful for you to just think about scenarios that might relate to these in some kind of way. You can adapt these to your specific circumstance. So let's start with pitching, which is your specialty. As clinicians, we give presentations from time to time, but not pitches exactly. But increasingly, clinicians who are moving into business or tech are having to do this. And to me, pitching means selling investors or clients on our concept, building trust in our ability to deliver. And we're also trying to rouse people to action, whether that means investing or working with us in some way. So to start with, what are the ingredients of a good pitch? And there's a definition of pitching that I use a lot that summarizes exactly what you said there. Like for me, a pitch is an opportunity to tell someone else about something of yours with the view to get them to act in some way. So, and you, and that element of trying to see it as a conversation actually works for a lot of people that I work with just to try to see it. I've got something, whether it's an idea, a product, a service, a proposal, I've got something of mine that I want to tell someone else about with the view that they're going to invest in my business or they're going to move it forward up the chain to see how that might go if they're going to pilot this opportunity. So thinking about, first of all, the aim of your pitch is the first ingredient, just to be able to be really clear, what is it I want from this pitch? What do I want to get from that? What do I want the other person to do? And that's almost that one key message I went back to earlier in the content. Everything then fills into that. Does this, is this working toward the aim of this person wanting to invest in us or wanting to act on this in some way? So try to think about that definition that sometimes helps us get the right grounding for what our pitch might be. The other things to think about is what problem are you solving? Because often when you're pitching something, there's a problem you're solving or you're trying to make something better or you're trying to implement a product or a service that's going to have a great influence in some way. So try to think about the problem that you're solving. Get really clear on that. If you can describe that in one sentence, great. So as an example, it might be we want to, there's some stats that are coming out that there's a massive decline in a certain area of operations within a healthcare organization, for example. So we're seeing over the last couple of years, X 
operational process has taken a real decline. You've now then identified there's an opportunity to do something about this and that's where your solution fits into it. So I always use the puzzle piece analogy. So imagine that you're opening this puzzle piece. You've got this first puzzle piece, which is a problem. You're educating the other person on what that problem is, talking in their language, going back to the content elements there. And then you're almost getting them to think, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that. Or that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm interested now. I want to hear what you've got to say and what your solution is. So start with the problem. It's almost like that start with why and then fill that puzzle piece to say introducing this problem or we are proposing this solution and this is how it's going to work. So as a brief idea of that pitch, think about that definition. What's the key aim you want this pitch to have? Open up with a problem, finish with with that solution. And depending on how long you've got in that meeting or in that pitch, you can then give some high level details on how it's going to work and how that in impacts the person that you're speaking to. So it's a real whistle stop talk. So I don't want to take up too much time on it, but hopefully that gives an example of how you can actually start to think about what your pitch might look like and the key ingredients that go within that as well. Yeah, I think structure is key with these kinds of things really, isn't it? It's once you have a general framework of what you need to say, then you can fill in the blanks as you go along, right? So when we are giving these pitches, oftentimes you make a mistake and it can be hard to keep your composure. People oftentimes just say, okay, just keep calm and carry on. And I personally don't really find that very helpful. I don't know if you do, but I wonder if you have any kind of practical advice for actually keeping calm and carrying on. Yeah, it's easier said than done. It's a yeah. very short term. Like, it's fine. It's like, well, it's not because you're, if, when you're in that position and we've all had those ground swallow me up moments of, oh my goodness, I completely lost my way. Or then maybe the person threw a curveball question over at you and you're thinking that was not part of my plan and I don't know how to answer this and now I'm just all messed up. So there is an element of naturally try to keep calm, but it's easier said than done. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. You, there has to be a point where you break you break in what you're saying. There's no point carrying on and trying to blag something or just for the sake of it continuing. You might as well just take those few precious moments to be able to reset. So if something isn't quite going your way, you're getting a little bit flustered, take a breath, take a deep breath, take a sip of water, try to compose, and then re-try re to think about what it is that you've done. So if it's in an interview... It might be that you want them to repeat the question again. You might want to say, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. Do you mind just referring back to the question that you asked me? Or if it's in a pitch scenario, you can just put a pause to say, and I think that going off on the tangent is quite nice to be that open, honest approach to say, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, or I've gone into a sort of a different area than what we've been speaking about. I'm just going to pause there to see if there's any questions and then I'll carry on with the rest of the pitch. And just being honest, sometimes it sounds so easy, but it's the most effective technique for me that you can use. We're only human. When you're in front of someone, they know it's a nerve wracking situation, whether it's a presentation, a pitch or an interview, they understand that. So try not to hide it because that will get you even more worked out. Then it goes into that fake it till you make it territory that we spoke about. And you're on this sort of consistent spiral of, ah, what am I doing? So just take a breath, take a pause and almost practice what that statement would be if you do lose your way. Is it that I'm just going to take a pause there, feel like I've got off on a tangent a little bit. So I'm just going to reset. Can you just repeat that question again? Or let me just double check where we're at and then I'll move forward to the next part of the presentation. Deep breath, glass water, 
whatever works for you and then move on. That would be my advice. Honesty works a dream sometimes when people think you can't, can't possibly put yourself in a vulnerable position and, and say that you've lost your way. It's the best way to be able to just acknowledge it. It's out there and then move on. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's so, so true. It's like, it's, it's a lot easier to just call it out for what it is rather than people kind of look at you like, do they know what they're doing right now? <laughs> do they know they're still talking or do they know that they've kind of gone off and they're, they're carrying on? So yeah, I think that's wonderful. So let's try another scenario. So we'll talk about clinicians who are trying to change a patient's behavior. This is a very, very common scenario. You are, in a sense, as the clinician, whether you're the physiotherapist or you're the doctor or the dentist, you're trying to sell a new habit or you're trying to change a lifestyle kind of way way of looking at lifestyle in someone who was just hoping you'd just prescribe them a drug prescription. Do you have any tips for how we can become more persuasive when we're giving advice so we can actually motivate someone to act on what we're trying to tell them? Yeah, it's a brilliant scenario. And I think like you said, this probably the one I imagine is the most common one. And you touched on it there. You, you are in that scenario, you are a salesperson. So as much as you are a clinician, you are that person that's going to be able to give that advice. You are selling, you're almost selling that advice. And you're trying to get the other person to see that it's a good idea from their point of view, rather than it just being a quick fix that you can say, this is what you need. So different persuasive techniques and everyone's slightly different. And there's lots of different sort of sales techniques out there that you can use, but always trying to see it from the other person's point of view, trying to get them to think about scenarios that maybe could benefit from them by taking on the advice, whether that's sort of physiotherapy, long-term rehabilitation to try and help with, you know, solving a, a fracture or whatever they might have, if it's something, something quite tangible, but really trying to get them to think about what's their lifestyle. And it, it probably are, requires asking a fair amount of questions. And whenever I say people love talking about themselves, I always get a bit of a smile or a roll of the eyes. But reality is people do like talking about themselves. It's quite a fun topic. Once we get into it, if we can make the other person feel really relaxed, actually being heard and have, having someone that's genuinely interested in something that we've got to say goes a long way. So I would be thinking about what questions could get them, the patient, thinking about their lifestyle, thinking about what's important to them, thinking about what actually they could do if they were to take this longer term route in terms of the support that you're giving, the advice that you're suggesting that they take on rather than just that quick fix. And I think if you can get them to sort of visualize what their life could look like, visualize what these scenarios could be, then it's almost them hopefully coming to that conclusion of that's where I want to be. That's what I want to visualize in. So you're putting yourself in their shoes, but you're actually getting them to verbalize what that benefit might look like. So that would be my approach in, in that situation. And it's probably something that a lot of listeners have, have tried before, or maybe it's a technique that they've thought about trying as well. And it probably takes a bit of patience. You know, the first couple of questions, you might get short answers. You might have someone that's just really against even having this conversation because they just want you to give them the pill and fix it. But really trying to work on that and be patient with it, even though they might have lo not loads of time to do it. But if you can have that patience, try to come at it from different angles, just get them talking in the first place. And then it turns into a conversation. But actually what you're doing is steering that conversation to where you want it to be to get them thinking of, 
or what's value what's the value for me to do this exercise or what's the value for me to take this advice on board and change my behavior and that really sort of helps to get you then to respond what to what they say well, it's really interesting you mentioned that so you've got some nieces and nephews amazing like how do you want to spend time with them and talking about that side and that just might help spur on that conversation so that's the probably the biggest tip in terms of persuasive techniques in a clinical setting that would be the one that would be my go-to yeah there's is a real kind of coaching element to that right mm. rather than giving people answers trying to get them to get there on their own you're almost giving them control over that conversation then as well and giving them some some sense of control rather than feeling like they're just being spoken at and told what they need to do it's actually flipping the narrative a little bit and it is you're absolutely right it's that coaching approach that would hopefully help to get those results that you want and get that behavior change rather than it being let me tell you and this is sort of a one-way one-way discussion mm-hmm. absolutely so these have been really, really useful tips and ideas. I, I know that it's the kind of thing that I would have found very, very useful when I was in medical school. Even <laughs> It wasn't really something that we talked about extensively, although we did often practice in front of patients. We didn't really talk about the techniques behind these kind of specific scenarios of communicating with people just thrown into the deep end so thank you so so much for sharing that and so I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are the dean of a university and you can influence the curriculum in any way that you see fit what kind of curriculum would you create to prepare future healthcare professionals to communicate more confidently and effectively what a question what a question um and what great, great sort of thought, sort of thought to be the dean of a university and just have this power to be able to influence on this as well. Because this is something I, I do actually think about quite a lot. I work a lot with universities, especially startup accelerators within universities, and um, and also sort of the the career coaching stuff as well. For me, there's such a gap in this. What and I hate the term soft skills because there's there's nothing soft about these skills. They are very valuable and very important. I think that word doesn't do them justice but there's something so key about weaving in this skill set alongside the theory and the learning that you have to go through as a healthcare professional and it's then it's similar across the board with other industries you're you're taught the theory but you're never sort of taught or put in that position where it's actually relevant to the situations you might find yourself in in a meeting how do you compose yourself in a meeting how might you chair a meeting if you've got an idea how do you put that forward and there's this assumption that everyone's kind of just got it you know you, oh, you just need to do a group presentation well for some people that could be a really nerve-wracking thing to do and they're not given those support and that sort of learning and skill sets to do that so for me it would be about bringing in this skill set and this soft skill development as part of that curriculum. So when you've got those theoretical opportunities, of course they're important, but where can you put in some opportunities to be able to build up to a real case scenario, set a scenario right on this day, this has happened, you've got a patient in front of you and they don't want to change their behavior. Let's role play this out and see how you go. And this could be part of an assessment or it could just be part of the end of a seminar, right? scenario number one for this week is this scenario number two we're going to throw you in this deep end but it just gets you to repeat and that that repetition of getting yourself in those uncomfortable situations especially when you're in the training ground and the playground where you're learning absolute gold dust for when you're in the real world 
So I'd be bringing in scenarios, doing some role play and really putting this emphasis on training for these skills. So you not only have these role play opportunities, but you're actually giving some feedback for them as well. Peer feedback. How did that go? How would you feel if you was that patient? What might you do differently in a really constructive and positive way? So I'd love to see that more because I think then you're going to get much more confident and compelling clinicians coming out of university who can tackle these scenarios that come up that we haven't actually been exposed to up until that point. Amazing. Thank you. This is, to be honest with you, this is kind of a, a thing that exists. We have OSCEs. I I wonder, so I don't think you would have heard of OSCEs. This is a, a thing that we have in, in, in clinical practice or in universities, we have OSCEs. And I think the key difference that you're describing to me is just kind of this idea that we're doing it alongside the theoretical side, side of things. We have exams at the end of the year where we have to practice and practice and um, we have to, we have to deal with an angry patient or something like that. But I always found it was at the end and it wasn't, it, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't as important as cramming in all of the information until we had to do this. I think it's, I think it's really good. This idea of like treating it as, as if it's as important as everything else and it's just part and parcel of what we're learning and also the key word empowering and just building that confidence with that because I, I I felt that oftentimes it could be it was just it was just kind of a pressured another kind of pressure cooker and um, we need to kind of create safe spaces around how we how we do these things we're not thinking about necessarily just performing or doing it right but actually focusing on our learning in that moment. So I really appreciate that answer. And thank you so, so much for being on the show. It's been just an, an education. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk about this, especially in this specific setting as well. Um, I would say, I think this skill is just so important. Hopefully that's just given some people some gems or some nuggets that they can take away. Absolutely. And so where can, where can our listeners follow you and how can they find out more about the work that you do? Because you work with health tech companies as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of startups I work with are often in that health tech space and the healthcare space, which is really interesting. I do work a lot with accelerator programs that are often in that space as well. Um, but LinkedIn is my go-to, I would say, in terms of following along with what I'm doing. Please do reach out to me on there. There's some YouTube videos that sum up quite a bit of what I've spoken about today, actually. So you can also check out my YouTube channel, which is all under first class comms. So I look forward to connecting with you because I could talk about these all day long. So any listeners that want to have more of a chat, please do reach out. Amazing. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor, subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.